with the Assisted Dying Bill receiving its first reading in the House of Keys last week, Agenda speaks to Assisted Dying Advocates Trevor Moore and Paul Wetherill. Trevor is chair of UK campaign group My Death, My Decision, and Paul is a member of the Manx branch, as well as a member of the Facebook group Let Me Choose. They paint an eloquent picture in favour of the bill, but are they right? Yeah, we're campaigning for a law that would extend to people who are terminally ill and also those who are suffering unbearably from incurable conditions. So people who are not necessarily terminally ill. Uh, Some of your listeners may remember a man called Tony Nicklinson who had locked-in syndrome, could only communicate by looking at letters on a screen. Um, He wasn't terminally ill. He could have stayed on ventilation and other equipment a long time but he uh, went as far as the Supreme Court without success to for a law to uh, to tell Parliament that they needed to change the law but the, the court said no it's for Parliament and uh, so we know we have to be a political campaign um, and at the moment in Westminster there is a health and social care committee inquiry on assisted dying which is um, interesting but it doesn't seem to have any particular powers as far as we can see. And the Isle of Man then, and uh, what's occurring here with um, Dr Alex Allinson, Ramsey MHK, Treasury Minister as well, it, the, the moves he's making must be catching the attention over in the UK. I think that's right. I mean, I would describe it as a pincer movement because there's the Isle of Man, Jersey and Scotland, all of which are uh, well on the way to having an assisted dying law. In uh, the Republic of Ireland, they've got a special commission. That's a, that's a governmental co- commission, whereas the, special, the select committee in Westminster was just a topic chosen by that committee. It doesn't have any government weight behind it. So, yeah, um, it's really important that we see other jurisdictions uh, moving ahead because there are currently 28 around the world that already have a law. And you alluded to before, the, keeping both sides of the argument in the conversation. Paul, why was it important to bring Trevor over and uh, and contribute to this uh, conversation? Well, I, th- I think it's important to get the experience of other jurisdictions. And obviously, the UK is the most important of our closest neighbours. Um, so, yeah, j- getting across the fact that this isn't something that's just... Um, of concern to individuals on the island, but is an issue that's uh, um, concerning people throughout the world. As Trevor says, a number of jurisdictions have now introduced assisted dying legislation. And um, there are people from the UK and from the Isle of Man who have gone to Dignitas in Switzerland um, because there isn't a local remedy for them. Uh, And uh, we we feel it's it's time now that um, we should support Dr. Allenson's bill and get the discussion going in Tinwald. Yeah, I mean, if I could add to that, that um, the way I put it is uh, suffering doesn't respect uh, national boundaries. People suffer all around the world. And we've seen now 28 jurisdictions, as I say, um, find a way of developing a law which has sufficient safeguards, but allows uh, the autonomy and choice of the individual to end what I would see as unnecessary suffering. Yeah, this is... I would say it's a matter of principle and uh, I, I refer to two C's. It's a matter of compassion for people and also a matter of choice. People's own choice to make their decision as to how 
they die. And this is where it gets difficult, isn't it? The the conversation strays into ethics and whether or not there's that word you use there as well, autonomy, whether that that person who who perhaps wants to take that decision um, to end their life is is making an informed decision and making it for themselves. Mm-hmm. How do you advocate? What what's your argument on that stance when it when it comes to that person being able to freely and fully make that decision for themselves and nobody else? I think that's obviously where a lot of people's queries and concerns lie. And uh, I think the safeguards that other jurisdictions have brought in uh, demonstrate that, you know, it it doesn't have to be a problem. Um, There are medical um, advice that's required. And in some cases, it has to go as far as a court decision. Um, uh, There's no way in which I would be advocating assisted dying where people are feeling pressured to end their life. Yeah, I think I think most commonly people say to me, well, hang on a minute, uh, if I'm uh, dying from cancer, I can refuse chemotherapy, um, you know, my, and, and the medical team have to decide whether they think I'm, I've got the capacity to do that. Mm. Mm. And um, you mentioned it is it becomes a political uh, matter when you're trying to go through uh, the legislative stages. Yourself, uh, Paul, a member of Liberal Vanin, where what's the stance of the party on this? We believe it's a matter of conscience. Uh, the party doesn't take a stand on it. I'm chair of Liberal Vanin and I support assisted dying, but there are members of Liberal Vanin who don't. And we respect each other's views. And as a party, we don't campaign on it. And does it become a bone of contention at all between party members? Um, not really. I, I, we, we've got, people have strong views on both sides for different reasons. Um, most of them are ethical, perhaps religious reasons, um, um, moral reasons, and people concerned that there's a slippery slope uh, once you make a decision uh, to allow people to uh, have... Um, assisted dying where 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 does it stop but uh, as i say i think the safeguards are there in place um and everyone should be clear as to what the meaning of the legislation is mm-hmm. and when you look at the legislation this to both of you now how how far away are we you mentioned there's got to be so many safeguards around this particular issue this must be something that even though we're talking now is it of it as a meaningful or a you know a seriously potential prospect what how long would it take to actually draft up the legislation for something like this is that a genuine concern that it could take a long while well dr allinson's produced his draft bill which is going for its first reading in timwell tomorrow um i i think uh the way the bill's been drafted is that it assumes that quite a lot of uh, regulations and protocols will follow. So in a sense, it's the higher level of what the assisted dying law would look like, what the key eligibility criteria would be. But then the department, um, the health Department of Health, is it called over here, um, has the ability to then make write the rules and regulations and the protocols. And that's what's happened in other jurisdictions. So in Victoria and Australia, for example, which is a model that's been followed elsewhere, they brought their law into effect. Uh, sorry, they, they passed the law, but they said it won't come into effect for a period during which uh, health pr- practitioners would get together and write the protocols. Because what happened in Canada, where their law was forced following a Supreme Court judgment, so Parliament was sort of catching up, 
um, it took a while for the protocols to develop, and yet assisted deaths were happening in that interregnum. They have now caught up, and they've got a nationwide protocol. But, um, you know, you can't pinpoint every detail which is sort of customised to this particular jurisdiction, uh, and it's best not to spend the time on that now. Rather get the the umbrella bill and then have your rules and regulations to follow. Hmm. But there is evidence from other jurisdictions, and other jurisdictions have already got those regulations in place. So it's not reinventing the wheel. Yeah, and it's not, I suppose, people argue we, we don't want a copy and paste style uh, legislation, but uh, but tailored. How do we ensure that it is tailored for the other man? Is that through, I suppose, consultation? And, and as well, you're meeting some more members tomorrow. Um, that's the kind of conversation you'll be having. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really important issue that when you look around the world, the variety of legislation is quite considerable. So you have places like um, Spain and Canada and Austria that have a broad law, which um, more or less reflects the kind of law that my death uh, decision is campaigning for at Westminster. Um, but in Australia, where all six states had their own legislatures, when Victoria first introduced theirs, the other ones have then adapted it. And so in New South Wales, for example, uh, they have a, a terminal prognosis of six months, but 12 months if it's a neurodegenerative condition. Uh, whereas in Victoria, it's strictly six months. So you can see how one can learn from others. And goodness, with 28 permutations out there, the Isle of Man and I, I would say Westminster have plenty of experience to draw on. And talking about the, just remind me of that term you said, neurodegenerative. Yeah. yeah. Why is that important to have that timeline in there? Is that around the the ability to consent and that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, we know several people from My Death, My Decision who have uh, motor neurone disease, for example. And um, it does affect different people in different ways. And the skills that they lose vary and the time frame within which that happens. So... There's a man called Phil Newby who uh, has actually taken cases to court uh, at Westminster without success. But he he sort of he says, well, look, you know, I can see this road ahead. It's unpredictable. But what I know it could bring is terrible suffering, immobility, inability to speak. But by the time I get to there, you know, I may not be able, as you say, I might not be mentally competent to make that decision. So. He wants to be able to look back from a further period, uh, possibly to make that decision. It's very much an individual choice. A lot of people wouldn't want to make it. And there is an impression given by opponents that once you have it, for some people, everyone will be forced to have it. But the evidence from around the world is that that just isn't happening. Speaking of opponents, it is one of those very divisive topics. What kind of arguments that you come up against a lot and um, who seem to be the strongest contributors how do you and how do you rise above the backlash I suppose that you must be you must be getting yeah I I, I suppose one of the um, strongest is the palliative care community because they would say that they are the ones who are dealing with people um, particularly approaching the end of life uh, more so than others but I do take exception when uh, palliative care doctors claim that the British Medical Association survey that was carried out showed that medical doc, uh, palliative care doctors are most opposed uh, when um, 
for example, nurses that we speak to who weren't part of that survey feel quite strongly that we should have an assisted dying law. There was an article in the BMJ a few years ago where five palliative care medics wrote in saying they support assisted dying, but they weren't prepared to say who they were because it would be career limiting. There is um, a sort of culture that you, if you're in palliative care, you can't speak out um, in favour. In other jurisdictions, it's really interesting how palliative care has come to work with uh, assisted dying as a part of the end-of-life pathway. Um, I think in Canada, around 80% of people who choose what they call medic medically assisted assistance in dying made have palliative care. It's not like they exclude one another uh, and they should be complementary, whereas I think opponents want to try and keep it as if it's there, this other in a, in a box on its own over there, it would be far better if it was if they worked with it, particularly mm -hmm. in formulating the rules and regulations that might apply. And we have seen evidence of uh, palliative care uh, medics on the Isle of Man as well. We've heard from hospice, I believe, who were who were quite against uh, assisted dying, outspoken about the matter. Um, have you, are you aware of that? Have you been looking into that, Paul? Uh, yeah, I'm obviously aware of it. Um, I, I agree with Trevor. I think. Um, assisted dying should be seen as part of palliative care and uh, it's a continuum uh, and it's as I say, we all say you know it's down to individual choice as to what route they they want to go down mm. um, and the hospice provides an excellent service for people at the end of life and no one would take that away from them but it's not for everyone uh, and they they can't help everyone through um, the suffering that uh, people endure and and they know that themselves but um, everyone does their best <laughs> uh, um, but giving people that choice to just say you know I've had enough I want to end it now um, please help me um, we do that for our animals uh, you know the veterinary service on the island is great um, we want to have the same um, medical service for humans who need that co same compassion yeah I think People often mention animals and having uh, sat with my dog last year while we took him to the vet and he's now at the big dog kennel in the sky. Um, yeah, that, that was our choice, though. But the point about assisted dying is it's the choice of the uh, cognizant human being. Mm -hmm. um, no one's suggesting that people who don't want it. I mean, Melanie Reed, who writes a column in The Times called Spinal Column, she had a terrible riding accident and is mostly paralyzed from the neck down um, when she was doing rehab she said um, it was really noticeable how people with the exactly the same I say exactly uh, never such a thing but mostly the same kind of injuries had completely different reactions to it some of them just wanted to give in to it and others wanted to fight it um, you can't say that when you get to a certain point of a condition that two people will, will decide the same. All we're saying is that there should be the choice. And going back to that, uh, the, the argument around palliative care, in other jurisdictions, is there evidence, is there models to be based on about how those two, how that world can live in harmony, where we can have, like you say, a, a successful palliative care program on the island and an assisted dying program? I would say, I mean, in a sense, Isle of Man is much smaller so I imagine it's much more sort of controllable but when when you look at places like Belgium 
or Canada or Austria, the uh, injection into palliative care of, of money at the time that they introduced their laws. And uh, certainly in, in Belgium and increasingly in Canada, the palliative care community work with uh, the maid practitioners. As I say, they don't. there isn't this schism where you try and treat assisted dying as something separate. Um, and also the funding. I mean, in Belgium, remarkably, uh, one of the professors who was giving evidence to our um, Health and Social Care Committee said that um, palliative care is on demand in Belgium. There is no budgetary cap. Um, and in the first 10 years they had an assisted dying law, the spend on palliative care went up 10% each year. So um, the idea that uh, having uh, uh, an assisted dying law is somehow going to prejudice palliative care, I don't think is borne out by the evidence. And it could be argued, I suppose, as well, people would say that with that option, people would refuse palli- to go to palliative care because they wouldn't want to have that, that burden, is that, is that word that we often hear a lot. Um, so you're saying the evidence shows that actually the, it, it isn't reducing demand on palliative care at all in, in Belgium? It's it's still there as it as it was. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any decline. Uh, but the the burden point as well. I'm glad you raised that because um, another issue often raised by opponents is that in the jurisdictions that have an assisted dying law that do their annual reports, being a burden is um, given as a reason uh, for wanting an assisted death. But uh, there are multiple reasons you're asked that whether you'd like to give and what. Over 90% of cases say it's to do with autonomy and the inability to do the things that they love to do, loss of dignity. Um, being a burden is there, but it's a, it, you know, it, it's a spectrum of choices. The fact that nine, over 9 out of 10 say it's to do with autonomy and inability to do what you wanted to do. There was a man on the radio, uh, the, the grandson of a man uh, on this station on Friday, um, said that his grandfather is uh, 83 and bedridden um, and he wants to die. And I don't understand how anyone can think that support of any kind is going to want a previously resourceful man like that to want to continue lying in bed unable to do anything uh, until he dies I mean why, why protract it like that and we did hear that is that is that a common story that you hear anecdotally from the Isle of Man as well is there many that we just don't happen to hear about well the Isle of Man's a small place small population so there won't be that many people most people Thankfully, when they die, you know, it's quite quick, quite often sudden um, from medical reasons. I'm not talking about accidental death. Or, um, but um, there are a number of people who become so seriously ill at the end of their lives that, as Trevor said, you know, they, they're bedridden. They're unable to look after themselves. Um, they have perhaps few people who are still alive that they relate to um, and some people in that situation just want an end to it and why why should we prevent it and obviously there must have been some call um to and some demand to to enact all this mm-hmm. and as well as dr allenson's efforts you're saying he's, he's not just <laughs> yeah he's he not just one man idea, right? yeah yeah um i mean word on the street what what kind of thing do you hear from 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 friends from relatives mm-hmm. and uh, and trevor as well what have you heard from the isle of man well I'll, I'll defer to paul on on the local knowledge but 
obviously the feedback from from the Isle of Man to us at MDMDHQ, if I can call it that, although we are a very small small organisation, is that there is, it, it, there is this requ- your, your um, uh, organisation was called Let Me Choose. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Um, so maybe you can just explain how it yeah. came about. Well, the uh, leader of Let Let Me Choose if, uh, is Vicky Christian, and uh, she's unfortunately not able to be here today, but she's the person who uh, established uh, the organization um, some years ago and has been campaigning locally. Um, she's helped a number of people um, uh, come to terms with the fact that there isn't legislation on the island. One or two, as I say, have, have gone across to, to Dignitas. Um, but we really need um, the facility on the island for people not to have to travel uh, uh, in these circumstances. Um, I've been a member of Let Me Choose for a couple of years, and um, my own feeling goes back to when I was um, um, a teenager, early 20s, when my grandmother um, was in hospital with dementia, and uh, she didn't have long to live, but she also had poor blood circulation and she got gangrene in one of her legs and the medical advice was the leg should come off to save a life and there was a, she wasn't in a position to authorise that operation so it fell on my father and his brother and sister to um, discuss it and uh, and give approval and there was a quite um, heated discussion amongst the three family members and I remember my uncle being you know adamant about the fact you know what what is the point you know you're taking her leg off uh, she doesn't know what's going on she's not going to live very long uh, wouldn't it be better if um, the doctors could just let her let her go and uh, my father and his sister um, took a different view, and the, the three of them eventually gave consent for the operation, and she died about eight months later. Um, but that stuck with me all my life as to, I think my uncle was right. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, she, my grandmother wasn't in a position to give consent, and that's one issue that needs to be discussed as part of the legislation. How far does it extend beyond um, the broad outlines that Dr. Allenson has um, is bringing forward in his bill? And perhaps there might be some amendments to extend it a l- little bit further. Trevor, you, you must have quite a similar background, hearing, hearing Paul's story there about how, how you became interested in, in assisted dying to begin with. Yeah, well, funnily enough, um, it, it was triggered by Tony Nicholson back in uh, around 2011, 2012, because uh, he got a lot of media coverage, uh, because by any stretch of the imagination, he was unbearably suffering. Uh, and he wanted his his wife, who was uh, an ex-nurse, to be able to help him to die. And that's why he went to the Supreme Court, which unfortunately said, sorry, this is an issue for Parliament. But... Um, Around that time, I actually uh, ended my professional career as a lawyer, and uh, I'm now a humanist funeral celebrant, and I visit terminally ill people often who want to talk about what might happen at their funeral. It may sound odd, but people like to do that, and it's very comforting for them. Uh, But also I meet many, many families in the aftermath of what they call bad deaths, and um, I'm just absolutely convinced that... There's a lot of needless suffering going on 
uh, and I can't understand why people think that hypothetical risks which aren't borne out in the many jurisdictions that have had assisted dying legislation for decades should outweigh real suffering now. That was assisted dying advocates Trevor Moore and Paul Wetherill, members of My Death, My Decision. The assisted dying bill is now in keys, so if you have a view, now would be a good time to let your MHKs know. Thanks to Lewis Foster for stepping in this week. For now, though, Gurumayus and Geishach, thanks for listening. <laughs>